Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and welcome to Global Hungers, the one-day international conference here in the English faculty. I'm Aki Mukherjee. My 18-month-old um, HRC-funded research project titled The Psychic Life of the Poor culminates in this event. I'm refraining from calling it a grand event. We'll see. Um, the HRC grant has allowed me to complete the research for my third monograph, uh, which examines the institution of psychoanalysis in its inadequate engagements with urban poverty, race, and migrancy, as seen in the specific context of global cities. So the book is titled Unseen City, The Psychic Life of the Poor in Mumbai, London, and New York, and it considers cultural understandings of poverty in relation to each city's psychiatric culture as that culture is manifested in public attitudes and state policy alike toward the mental health needs of the poor. The leave period has also enabled me to start writing the book, uh, a temperamental toddler. It boasts of about 50,000 babbling words so far. The last six months of the Leadership Fellows Grant have been structured around activities that connect solipsistic scholarship to the multi-generational and international academic community it aspires to belong to. In April this year, we had graduate workshops at King's College London and Warwick around the theme of humanitarian fictions. And it gives me great, great pleasure to see some of the participants here um, from the workshops. When you're in the foyer for coffee or lunch, please check out the display boards where we have put up contributions from the workshop attendees. And this conference uh, brings together scholars from around the globe, India, China, Brazil, Australia, the United States, home and EU, um, HEU, while we can still say that. Um, in the course of the day, we will see talks on slums and favelas, urban infrastructure and the right to the city, the Bengal famine and the 40-hour famine, um, animals in the modernist city, and women doubly colonized by the international division of labor. So English literature will be ably represented by Chinese, Brazilian, Zimbabwean, Indian, Bangladeshi writing, non-canonical genres, and so-called bad novels. Let's face it, this, the Faculty of English at the University of Oxford, is no house of hunger. In any of the senses, the Oxford alum, Dambudzo Marachera, meant it. A wretched body, or the home destroyed by poverty, its ceiling, as he says, pasted over with the crinkled fragments of a sky that had been cut up recklessly with an old razor. Nor is it comparable to the decolonizing nation convulsed by revolution. But I refuse to capitulate to the only fish can be marine biologists logic. And I hope we can use this forum today to ask urgent and uncomfortable questions instead about representation by proxy and the subaltern, about the use of hunger as allegory and concept metaphor, and what the slow and careful labor of unlearning our privileges, as Gayatri Chakraborty Spivak puts it, really entails. A conference such as this, supported at every step by the English faculty and taught, and shout out to Vicky McGuinness, who might not be there when I give thanks, the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities, testifies to the hybrid robustness of English studies 
at Oxford. It, it, it shows you what can be done in the name of post-colonial studies, world literature studies, American studies, and of course also you know, South Asia and African studies. It shows the impact and scope of Oxford humanities as a whole and the everyday struggle for some of us at least to make the university a multiversity, more diverse, more accessible, more world-facing, not only opening doors but keeping them open long enough and stepping out of those open doors once in a while and out of our comfort zones. So a few housekeeping arrangements, um, fire exits, there's one here, there's one, um, the, the door that you uh, kind of, you know, came, came in through. Um, there are fire exits, there's an accessible entrance to the building and of course the other exits, uh, including one in front of the English faculty with the rainbow flag on. I think that should be the um, easily sort of visible. Um, and a few sort of uh, important introductions. Um, Dr. David Barnes, who is the postdoctoral research assistant on the HRC project, and my intrepid uh, assistants, uh, Amelia Quinn and Bhagya Kasaba Somsheka, who are still sort of, you know, um, kind of uh, guarding the registration booth. Um, William Ghosh, who's here, and Kelly Che, who is also here. We are all here to help you. So we are uh, hopefully wearing badges, and you know who we are. Um, uh, Will and Kelly, do you mind sort of waving at people? Um, so please, please let us know if we can help you in any way. This conference is an, an impact-led activity as most, most HRC events are. So, uh, you know, uh, please feel free to share, you know, whatever you want on Facebook and Twitter. And if you are tweeting, please use the hashtag Global Hungers. Um, there will be a group photograph just before the start of the afternoon session with all the speakers and the graduate assistants. So the speakers, please assemble here around two, you know, just after lunch, just before Gatshu Spivak's uh, keynote. So it now gives me great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Robert J.C. Young is Silver Professor in the Department of English at NYU, and he is Dean of NYU Abu Dhabi. He's the author of several pioneering works of postcolonial scholarship, such as White Mythologies, Writing History and the West, Colonial Desire, Hybridity in Culture, Theory and Race, and Postcolonialism and Historical Introduction. Young is a corresponding fellow of the British Academy and a fellow of the Academy of Europe. His work has been translated into over 20 languages, including Arabic, Hebrew, Persian, and Turkish. In 2015, uh, together with Jean Calfa, Young published a collection of writings by Franz Fanon, Écrit sur l'aliénation et la liberté, the first new work in the name of Fanon to be published in over 50 years. The English translation of this collection, titled Alienation and Freedom, was published earlier this year. As many of you know, Robert is my much adored and much respected predecessor at Wadham College. He's also the figure responsible for putting postcolonial studies on the English curriculum at Oxford. It is a great honor, Robert, to have you open the conference. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Anki. Thank you very much for <coughs> inviting me, and it's a great pleasure to be here back, back in Oxford. Um, I didn't manage to send a title in my wayward way uh, for my talk, so uh, I have thank you to <coughs> thank for my title, Introducing Global Hungers. Uh, but when I sat down to uh, write the lecture, I suddenly got a total alarm because I suddenly read that I was introducing global hunger, which 
gave me something of a fright, given that <coughs> I've spent most of my life trying to stop global hunger. So I, I hope that I'm actually not introducing global hungers um, and won't get the blame, blame for that. Um, <coughs> but uh, it, certainly if I, if I have to introduce them, then I, I immediately had a, a question, really, which was what, in fact, um, are hungers, global hungers, as a noun rather than a, a verb, um, <coughs> because hunger is an uncountable or mass noun that, that uh, doesn't take a plural grammatically. So uh, after thinking about this for some time, uh, I then thought about uh, the history of my own family, uh, who originated and migrated from Ireland to England uh, <coughs> as a result of what's known as the Great Hunger, the Irish famine of 1845 to 9. So I then reasoned that if, the, if there was a great hunger, there must have been lesser hungers, and therefore immediately I started using the word hungers, and therefore, <coughs> indeed, the history of Ireland is really the history of, of different hungers. So uh, I'm the product of one of those hungers, so from that point of view, I guess I'm qualified to introduce the, the topic. In the title of the conference, uh, hungers leads to another uncountable noun, that is poverty. <coughs> and uh, poverty, uh, as a body called the World Hunger Education Service, uh, <coughs> uh, which has a website, correctly tells us uh, is basically the principal cause of hunger. It's obvious uh, connection. The website uh, uses World Bank figures <coughs> to suggest that in this century, the 21st century, actually global poverty has been reduced very significantly, and this is what they say. As of 2013, when the most recent comprehensive data on global poverty was collected, about 767 million people are living below the international poverty line, <coughs> uh, <coughs> which is less than $1.90 per day. This was a decrease of about a billion people below the poverty line from 1990. Now, this lowering of poverty around the world claim, is often claimed as the big benefit of globalization. You can say since the beginning of globalization, 1990, a billion people have, uh, <coughs> have been moved above the poverty line. But the problem with these kind of statistics is, is uh, as with all statistics, uh, <coughs> in the detail, first of all, um, how you define the poverty line. And in fact, statisticians periodically change the dollar amount of what constitutes the poverty line. Uh, it used to be $1.25. So as soon as you change the actual amount that is reckoned to be the, do the, uh, <coughs> the poverty line, billions or millions of people are, are theoretically moved in or out of the poverty line. Uh, and of course, the value of the dollar varies from, from day to day. So it's not actually a stable measure against which these people, uh, some of them are living in the United States, but the majority of them are not. So it's not a stable measure for that. And so too will, of course, be the thornier question of what exactly constitutes poverty. Hunger, by contrast, in a way, is more absolute because uh, you can feel poor, but maybe not be poor. But if you're hungry, it hurts. You know, you know you're hungry, uh, and and you can't really dispute that. A different sort of measure comes from uh, that other noun already invoked in in verbal form that historically is closely related to both hunger and poverty, and that is migration. Uh, contemporary migration today is, uh, is obviously the product either generally uh, <coughs> of conflict, producing refugees such as those from, from Syria, 
or in terms of poverty. And the boat called uh, Lifeline that is at the moment skulking around the Mediterranean waiting for a country to <coughs> allow it to uh, land, having been refused by Italy, uh, is, uh, is full of migrants from West Africa where actually even the World Bank uh, agrees that poverty has increased in recent, in recent years. And it's poverty that, that drives the, the willingness of men particularly, but not only men, from that region to risk that long, long journey overland north from West Africa around the coast uh, <coughs> all the way to Libya and then to risk their lives on these inflatable boats that ships like Lifeline uh, <coughs> um, then rescue. So uh, <coughs> poverty is, is driving migration. It's one of the main drivers of migration, particularly from, from Africa uh, as we speak. But uh, migration, compelling though it is, is not our topic today, so I better, I'm not going to wander off into migration. Uh, and I want to return to global hungers. And also the problem of poverty, uh, as the subtitle says, in post-colonial literature, which also uh, <coughs> um, gives me a question, which is, um, in what sense is poverty a problem for post-colonial literature? I'm not quite sure that I know myself. Is it constituted as a problem in post-colonial literature, by post-colonial literature, as it were? Or is poverty a problem that we need to sort out for it uh, in the way that um, Jacques Rancière, for example, charges, that, uh, <coughs> philosophy, charges philosophy with having founded itself on the exclusion of poverty? Is it, is it that sort of a problem? Uh, or is poverty a problem for post-colonial literature in the way that a recent uh, symposium that perhaps some of you attended uh, organized by the Royal Society of Literature <coughs> uh, called uh, uh, Literature and Poverty, which uh, <coughs> I thought might be quite a useful thing for thinking about this conference. But uh, <coughs> in fact, it turned out to be uh, almost entirely concerned with the poverty of writers of literature. In other words, you can't earn a living writing literature these days. Um, <coughs> it was, of course, the 19th century uh, that European writers were particularly concerned with the with, uh, problem of poverty as a social condition, primarily. Uh, <coughs> we think of Dickens, Gaskell, Zola, uh, and many others. But what's particularly uh, distinctive about poverty for post-colonial literature is, is our question. Is it the problem that it doesn't seem concerned enough with it, uh, given that extreme poverty is mostly defined as existing in post-colonial countries? And how does post-colonial literature relate poverty to hunger or hungers? Every writer I know is a hungry reader, exclaimed uh, Penelope Lively this weekend, if you noticed, uh, in the Financial Times in an interview. And as uh, Maud Elman has shown in her wonderful book, The Hunger Artists, one characteristic of hunger as a word is that it's hard to stop it from metaphorizing into something other than the physical discomfort of lack of food. It transmutes effortlessly into all sorts of uh, other appetites and desires, even the negation of the object by the spirit. In Hegel's Phenomenology, Elman ruminates, quote, the world takes the form of a vast restaurant in which the subject negates the sensuous reality of objects by gobbling them up into his consciousness. Elman even chews over the idea that food is perhaps the real repressed in Freud. Quote, his vast encyclopedia of sexual malaise constructed to evade the everyday catastrophe of eating. We can't have assumed that hunger is the same in every language. Uh, if we're thinking about global poverty, global 
hunger. Is, is hunger the same in every language? Roughly speaking, in English and German uh, stay relatively close in their meanings of the word, but uh, if you move to French, for example, many of the milder metaphorical uses of, uh, of uh, hunger, the French uh, invoke by the use of soif, thirst. So they, they, well, we say we're hungry for things, they say they have a, a thirst for things. Uh, and in other languages, such as Arabic, for example, uh, <coughs> they distinguish quite carefully between different forms of hunger, between hunger as physical discomfort uh, in the body, along with thirst, tartouche, hunger as, as the need to eat, el joie, uh, hunger as craving, naham, uh, and hunger as desire, tolk. So uh, anglophones who generally don't fast or starve uh, blithely bundle all these different kinds of hunger uh, into one word. And as a result, hunger slips all too easily uh, away from its relation to food towards all the other things that we desire and we'd like to eat up, whether we become hungry for love or voracious readers, for example. Hunger and starvation, along with taste, are all too easily transformed into aesthetic categories, as, has, as Kafka's bizarre and ironic 1922 story and a hunger künstler, <coughs> a hunger artist, uh, suggests. Moreover, with the decline of the patronage system, the romantic myth of the starving artist meant that, like TB, it became associated with the feverish artistic temperament which produced the heightened consciousness of the artist living close to death with inspired hallucinatory visions, of which perhaps um, Knut Hansen's Hunger of 1890 uh, is the most enduring example. This is the kind of hunger that Rumble celebrates in his uh, poem Fête de la Fin, uh, <coughs> Festivals of Hunger, Feasts of Hunger, uh, where he declares that he's lost his uh, taste for anything, any food except for stones and earth. Uh, and where incidentally he uses the word hunger in the plural, fin. Poverty, on the other hand, uh, isn't quite so easily transmutable into these inventive uh, <coughs> alternatives. It's less glamorous. It's a simple question of need, of not having enough. It doesn't shift into the verbal form like hunger uh, that requires a preposition following it, hunger after something. Unlike hunger that's associated with aesthetics, taste and desire, poverty is associated, uh, associated either with economic deprivation or relief from it, whether through social or economic policy or charity, or with moral qualities that rich people should aspire to, as advocated by many religions, where poverty is identified with a Franciscan detachment from the world uh, and its materialist consumerism that we are advised to pursue. But this, uh, however, involves uh, poverty. In a way, it's a different kind of poverty from, from regular poverty because it's poverty as a matter of choice. For those who don't have the luxury to make that choice to become poor. Poverty in practical terms often brings rather servitude and unwelcome subjection to a world with few options. For, the, for those born into it, as Albert Camus wrote, quote, poverty is not a choice one makes, which is why he claimed that it was poverty that taught him what freedom is. Few writers, though, have been taught and inspired like Camus by the experience of poverty. As Barbara Ehrenreich uh, <coughs> wrote recently in an article in The Guardian, the, uh, it's called In America Only the Rich Can Afford to Write About Poverty. Uh, 
She argued the problem of writing about poverty is that it's all too dominated, too, too often dominated by middle class uh, people, such as myself, I guess, uh, for, who, for all the right reasons, want to see it uh, abolished, but uh, not written about by those who suffer from it. And in representing poverty, literature often moves from a focus on aesthetics to its role of moral or political advocacy, the pursuit of justice, human rights, and all those roles that literature has in recent years uh, subsumed. What's interesting, though, is that, is that when um, uh, it's written by those who've experienced real poverty and hunger, when the subaltern speaks, as it were, if I may invoke the great absent but on her way Spivak, um, <coughs> we often find rather different concerns. Jacques Rancière argues uh, that working class writers typically access writing not by speaking their own truth or consciousness as intellectuals might wish, uh, but actually by imitating the discourses and genres of the bourgeoisie. Quote, worker poetry is not in the first instance an echo of popular speech, uh, but an initiation into a sacred language and fascinating language the forbidden and fascinating language of others. While this may be the case, what uh, Rancière missed, I think, is that uh, <coughs> working classes often make use of the kinds of art made available by contemporary developments in technology which haven't yet settled into restricted forms of access, as with the internet today. Working class utilization of what Adorno saw as the purely negative process of commodification allows them not just to speak, which of course People speak all the time. Uh, nobody generally has a problem in speaking as such. Uh, but to leave a trace of their speech and of themselves. And it's leaving that trace uh, that in some sense could be said uh, to, <coughs> to be how writing lifts people out of poverty. In the past few years, I've been exploring different ways in which men and women, uh, <coughs> subalterns as we call them, speak as a way of, express of investigating why the voices and expressive forms of ordinary people appear often so inaccessible to intellectuals. We can learn a lot from reading minoritarian texts that invoke the painful and joyful conditions of, of poverty. Even while they may often involve intense recurrent descriptions of hunger, remember that uh, Richard Wright's uh, famous autobiography, which <coughs> uh, gives some very harrowing accounts of hunger, uh, uh, in his case as a boy, uh, his preferred title for it was not Black Boy, which is the way we, <coughs> the title we know, but uh, he wanted to call it American Hunger. He wanted to make a book about hunger, not primarily about blackness. And as in that book, we, dis we learned that there's much to discover, to, much to learn uh, from those who experience real poverty that can inform us in ways that both question our own assumptions and aesthetics, as well as show, show us that there are kinds of knowledge that operate outside conventional parameters and therefore may not be even recognizable as knowledge or art at all. And it's this kind of art, uh, <coughs> the art of what Edward Glisson calls art of ideological opacity, opacity, that particularly interests me, particularly in relation to memory or the lack of memory. For in general, writing is also inexorably bound up with memory. Those who write remember. In his mesmerizing account of the harsh history of growing up as a <coughs> part of an impoverished family in colonial Algeria, the premier homme, the, the, the first man, Albert Camus argued that what was distinctive about his society was the degree to which the people involved in it left were not only poor but left no trace. 
and live solely in the present without invoking memory. For poor people, especially those who are illiterate, Camus wrote, thinking of his own family, memory was different. This is Camus. Poor people's memory is less nourished than that of the rich. It has fewer landmarks in space because they seldom leave the place where they live and have fewer reference points in time throughout their lives that are grey and featureless. Of course, there's the memory of the heart, which they say is the surest kind. But the heart wears out with sorrow and labour. It forgets sooner under the weight of fatigue. Remembrance of things past is just for the rich. For the poor, it only marks the faint traces on the path to death. Speaking of his mother and his grandmother, Camus writes, they went on living in poverty, silent and drawn in on themselves, empty of memories and only holding on to a few blurred images. They live, they live now in proximity to death, that is, always in the present. And yet Camus was also adamant that poverty was never a misfortune for him personally. In fact, it's, uh, for him it was a source of human warmth and also a lyric creativity in his own writing. But that's not to say that he didn't portray it as a misfortune for others, such as those he described in his very powerf powerful articles on the wretchedness of the 1939 famine in Kabylia in uh, Algeria, where half the Berber population was subsisting on roots and herbs. Poverty, Camus uh, was always concerned to emphasize, isn't a uniform condition, but a spectrum of diversity, ranging from physical discomfort to shame to utter deprivation, destitution, pain, starvation, and finally, death. Most of those who've experienced poverty uh, in an extreme form uh, not understandably, quite understandably write about it afterwards, um, portraying it in retrospect. But artists who produce out of poverty uh, often articulate other more immediate concerns and preoccupations uh, rather than reflecting on the conditions of poverty as such, as Camus does. And today I want to look at an example of art produced right out of poverty, that is, of a subaltern artist, who was born just two years before Camus, uh, <coughs> in 1911, but dying a full 22 years before Camus' own premature death in 1960, who never experienced anything other than poverty, but also used it as one of the sources of his artistic vision and developed a commodified form of popular culture in order to express himself. Refusing our demands of marginalized people, speaking, <coughs> um, as <coughs> speaking as if they should speak to other classes about themselves uh, and their condition, and in his case, recording and recoding uh, <coughs> in, in his own art, aesthetic forms that put the tensions in the social conditions of his own unstable, impoverished society productively to work. My example isn't obviously colonial or post-colonial, though as the descendant of American slaves, he certainly doesn't fall outside that history. It's the legendary blues singer and <coughs> guitarist Robert Johnson, who lived from 1911 to 38, who on the basis of 29 records made in 1936-7 is now generally rated as one of the most influential of 20th century singers and musicians and amongst the five or ten, is ten greatest guitarists uh, of all time. Johnson's music uh, first became widely known not in his own time, but when the iconic LP, King of the Delta Blues Singers, was published in 1961. Johnson, Frank Driggs's sleeve notes on the other side, claimed in 1961, 
offered true southern country blues authenticity, untouched by urbanization and commercialization. Robert Johnson, he said, sang primitive blues. He was, quote, the greatest primitive blues singer of all time. The reality was rather different. <coughs> in fact, the allegedly raw and primitive uh, <coughs> Delta blues singer was the invention of white musicians and producers in the 1960s who were searching for a primitive, non-commodified uh, and uncommercialized form of African-American music <coughs> as the touchstone of an authentic folk music, uh, which was <coughs> uh, popular at that time. Rather like the narrator in Le Alejo Carpentier's 1953 novel, Los Pasos Perdidos, uh, um, The Lost Steps. In fact, though, as Elijah Wald has ably demonstrated in a, in a more recent book, Escaping the Delta, there was nothing raw or primitive about Johnson, whose forms of musical invention and transposition were highly sophisticated and self-aware. He modelled himself on Leroy Carr, the successful uh, <coughs> blues singer who was, had a kind of version of blues that was in between blues and crooning. And as Wald argues, Johnson was, was uh, also thoroughly professional. Uh, <coughs> he was unusual among Delta singers, in creating a range of songs in different contemporary styles, not just blues, that were all exactly the right length for the three minutes of the single side of 78 RPM shellac record. What Wall shows is that the beginning with the expectations and priorities of the talent scouts developing the market of so-called race records, as they were known at that time, i.e. black records, uh, Johnson's story illustrates that however much the subaltern may speak, he or she will always be pressured to perform in certain ways according to dominant expectations and put into dominant categories such as race records. However, he also shows how the subaltern utilizes forms of obscurity to maintain his or her control as Johnson himself was able to do. He's a good example, I think, of ideological opacity, beginning with an now legendary, almost complete absence of biographical information about him, which is itself indicative, of course, uh, of his situation. Brought up in the cruel world of the depressed South, the home of slavery and continuing social, social marginalization, impoverishment and victimization of African Americans, Johnson didn't directly tell us about the conditions he lived under, nor what it was like to experience them. Nor did he protest overtly against them at any point. He simply accepted them. He was a singer, uh, and he spoke to those who listened to or heard his music. In other words, other Southern African Americans with lives as shadowy and as undocumented as his own. One side of, the, one side of this is that there, are, uh, <coughs> that there are now at least three claimed grave sites for Johnson around Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, where he died, but basically nobody knows. He was thrown into a, <coughs> a pauper's grave and nobody knows where he was buried. For most of those living in the Mississippi Delta at that time, he was just another blues singer, an itinerant musician singing in the local bars, juke, juke joints, street corners and country dances. While it was certainly the case that an earlier generation of musicians and um, <coughs> singers such as Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, or Blind Lemon Jefferson had achieved great success uh, with their record selling to fellow African Americans by the millions, hence the commercial category of the race records, Johnson never had the chance to establish greater popularity. Only six records were released during his lifetime after the two recording sessions in, in Texas in San Antonio in November 1936 and Dallas in June 1937. 
The following year, uh, he was dead <coughs> at the age of 27, poisoned uh, by the husband of a woman with whom he was allegedly having an affair. Johnson was gone. And without commodification, without those two recording sessions, his music, too, would have gone forever, as ephemeral and as transient as the bars and dances where he sang. With two sessions and modest sales of a few records released during his r lifetime, it's hard to claim that he was co-opted as such by the culture industry or compromised by it. It was only when some of his recordings were re-released in that LP, King of the Delta Blues Singers, in 1961, that he began to achieve iconic fame and became idolised by rock musicians, many of them British, uh, <coughs> the likes of Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Brian Jones, as well as by Jimi Hendrix. He was himself so shadowy that when that LP was released, there were no known photographs of him. <coughs> but So they had to put that painting um, uh, of an imaginary figure playing a guitar uh, on the cover. But um, <coughs> since then, actually, three photographs of Johnson have been identified. Notice how contrary to the down-and-out shapeless hick country outfit imagined for him on the painting of the LP where he sits playing on a wooden chair <coughs> uh, on, the, on the dirt, as Americans would say, in the middle of nowhere, the real Johnson is in fact wearing a snappy suit and a tie <laughs> and a stylish hat. Uh, but what's so distinctive about him <coughs> and makes him immediately recognisable is the extraordinary length of those fingers, clearly visible here uh, <coughs> and on the third photograph. And it was doubtless one of the factors that enabled him to produce the sounds that he did on his guitar. Uh, <coughs> so one of the ways in which uh, he's identified on photographs now uh, is, is precisely not only by his face, but by the length of his fingers. Those fingers, long and spidery, are the envy of every guitarist who sees his picture. Johnny Shines, his sometimes travelling companion with whom Johnson uh, was pictured in the second image, that's Johnny Shines, Put it beautifully, when, he, when Johnson played, he said, his sharp, slender fingers fluttered like a trapped bird. Now, there are different ways that we could discuss the dimensions through which he spoke, the music he created, and his own remarkable distinctive style of guitar playing that's been imitated since by hundreds, if not thousands, of musicians. The modulating quality of his eerie, haunting voice, which moves between different registers and displays extraordinary microtonality, sliding through an astonishing range of pitch and tones, almost in response to the way that he achieves similar effects on, with his innovative guitar techniques. What's idiosyncratic about him is the way that he plays a bass line at the same time as the melody, which makes it sound as though there are two guitarists playing at once. And when Keith Richards uh, <coughs> um, <coughs> reputedly first uh, introduced Johnson to his bandmate Brian Jones, Richard said, who's the other guy playing with him? Actually, it was Johnson. There are also the less often celebrated words of his songs, the most obvious articulation of what could be called subaltern speech. <coughs> Though, as I've suggested, he doesn't express anything like subaltern consciousness. Uh, <coughs> when, but when you examine the language of the songs in detail, what you get is a jagged microcosm of the world of the professional itinerant singer, a world of casual but still emotionally powerful relationships of abandonment and insecurity and, of course, poverty. Take, for example, his Love in Vain, made famous uh, by the Rolling Stones' 1969 cover version, 
which Johnson, in fact, himself adapted, uh, <coughs> certainly in the musical structure, uh, from Leroy Carr's popular When the Sun Goes Down, which had been uh, released two years earlier in March 1935. Johnson's emotive song isn't one that features the full extraordinary range of his guitar playing or of his voice, <coughs> though they're strong enough and that you can hear the bass line being played separately uh, throughout. But what strikes me in particular about it is the words that Johnson's crying voice articulates in its full and evocative immediacy, still so vivid 81 years after those 2 minutes 24 seconds in June 1937, when he bent over facing the wall and sang into the microphone. Unusually for blues singers, there are actually two recording takes of this song, and I'm going to play you the first, which begins enigmatically with the only surviving recording of Johnson himself speaking rather than singing. It's, a, it's very snatched and it's very hard to, to hear, but what he actually says uh, appropriately, I think, is, I want to go on with our next one myself. Johnson's songs are <coughs> generally enigmatic and often hard to interpret. Everything seems a potential metaphor for everything else, often for sexuality, but also for situations which were simply left to guess and imagine. And in this song, however, it's not the ideological opacity, it's not the obscurity of subaltern speech or song that's evident, but actually, I think, an altogether classical simplicity. 
that makes it, I'd argue, one of the most evocative love poems of the 20th century. It's opening in media rays with the and, as if we've missed the beginning of the whole story. The minimalist use of metonymy to tell the story so elusively, the simple detail, I followed her to the station with a suitcase in my hand, where it's not clear whether it's her suitcase or his, <coughs> with him hoping to go with her. And then the dramatic moment in which the movement of the narrative hinges when the train arrives and the subject of the sentence silently shifts from the train to his lover. The train rolled up to the station and I looked her in the eye. Followed not by her response, but his emotional response to her non-response. An intensely intimate moment of unreadable unreadability. Finally, the extraordinary economy of the penultimate stanza in which the train leaves the station with the two lights shining from the caboose guardsman, which Johnson transforms into symbols of his own emotional torment. When the train it left the station with the two lights on behind, well, the blue light was my blues and the red light was my mind. And the almost wordless last verse, which draws on the Mississippi holo tradition, field holo tradition itself, having been carried over from West Africa by the slaves, <coughs> wordless except for the sudden and unexpected introduced name of his sweetheart, Willie May, whose, with whose name speech breaks down into a stuttering repetition of the refrain to end in a disembodied silence, broken, unfinished, unresolved, lacking any harmonic resolution, like any of the best examples of high modernism, or even, to return to Adorno, late Beethoven. At the edges of this song, we get a real sense of the intense, insecure world of a certain African-American life in the South in the 1930s, with people continually on the move in, transit, in transient relationships, without stable families, jobs, or even identities with durable names of their own. When Johnson spoke, he expressed at once an emotional narrative, but at the same time, his words and the broken form of the song powerfully evoke the psychic pain of the fragmented transitory social conditions of the world in which he lived. But how many of those who lived in that same world as Robert Johnson now stay in our memory? Camus puts, Camus puts the experience of poverty into a powerfully evocative register when he reflects not on poverty's hardship or its need, but on the, the what he calls immense oblivion that awaited the impoverished settlers, including his own father, whom he never knew, who've migrated generation after generation from France, Spain, Italy, or Malta to colonial Algeria. Camus. No, he would never know his father, who would continue to sleep over there, his face forever lost in ashes. There was a mystery about that man, a mystery he wanted to penetrate. But, after all, there was only the mystery of poverty that creates beings without names and without a past, that sends them into the vast throng of the nameless dead who made the world, while they themselves were destroyed forever. Poverty also means absence, forgetting, oblivion, to live anonymously in this world and to die without leaving a trace. Thank you.